Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 743 with Dr. Elizabeth Rogers, who that's actually a term I'd never heard before, translational epidemiologist. But before before I butcher your uh, your resume, could you please introduce yourself to everybody? I'm honored to introduce myself to everybody, Tommy, and I'm honored to be here and connecting with you and all of our Thank listeners. You. So I'm, you're welcome. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Rogers. I am a PhD and master's in epidemiology and like Tommy and I were just talking about I'm a translational epidemiologist got my degrees at the University of Pittsburgh after I left the University of Pittsburgh I went into industry worked for Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield a big insurance company that lots of us here in the United States have heard of I worked worked for a subsidiary of theirs in Pittsburgh Pennsylvania for a number of years as both an epidemiologist, consultant, and health services researcher. During that time, I did a postdoc at Harvard, and now I am, I actually decided at a certain point to leave the industry and start my own business. So what's nice now is that um, I, I don't owe anything to any institution, so I'm not here to be bound to anybody, and it feels good to just be able to talk to you as a completely free probably kind of rogue epidemiologist. <laughs> those are the, those are the, those are the best get, not that, you know, I understand some guests are tied to things, you know, institutions, but those are the best guests where it's like, like no strings attached. It's like, Oh hell. It's like, it's like, yeah. Oh hell yeah. Dude. I love these. I'm, I love I'm these ones. Cause transparent. I'm, I, I'm an open book. I'm here to be fully transparent. And, um, you know, for our non-science guests listening, I, I feel like that word epidemiologist has been thrown around so much these past two years, but, a colleague of mine actually said to me the other day, you know, you should explain to people what that means when you do this interview, because I think we hear that word, but we still don't know exactly what in the world you do. So what if you looked epidemiology up in a textbook, I used to teach this class as a teaching assistant while I was a doctoral student, it would say that epidemiology is the study of the frequency, distribution, and determinants of any health issue and the application of that study to the improvement of health of the health of a population or large groups of people. And the way I like to say it is that what we really do is study cause and effect as it relates to health. And that's really the way I like to explain it in just very simple terms, because the lot longer definition is long is long and confusing, but we do study patterns and trends related to health issues and health outcomes. But I really in my career, wanted to become what I called a translational epidemiologist. And at the University of Pittsburgh, we had a center for translational science where I did some training because I always felt that it was really important to me personally and professionally to be able to connect with people because I feel like that's really what science and research are supposed to be all about is helping people. But I feel like there's a pretty big disconnect there sometimes and I really wanted to be able to help people understand, um, help people, for example, when something comes out in the media and you see a statistic, how do you interpret what that really means, right? I don't think we've had anybody out there a lot lately doing that. How do you interpret a number and how do you not just take it at face value? I think we should teach people how to be 
um, you know, intelligent skeptics, because that's what the beauty of science is all about, right? That you don't just take a number at face value and say, oh, something's a certain percentage of effectiveness. But it's important that me, as a scientist, I understand how that number was determined. Because the truth is that what happened to create that number may have not been very sound scientifically. And then that means that maybe as a population, you should be questioning that number. So I wanted to be able to help people understand how to interpret the science, which I think can be really confusing sometimes. Could you maybe go in and, and give some examples? I know for my own my own limited knowledge on this, or just kind of layman's uh, observation, yeah. you, you, the first thing you look at, right, is like, it's like COVID deaths. But then, but then the the thing that you're measuring starts to change, which is fine, but you, you, you're pawning it off as the same quote-unquote number, the big number you see on the news, whether it's deaths or whatever, when you see the big ticking number on CNN, but no one's talking about how now it's, it's cases, not even hospitalizations. I had Omicron. I didn't even know it. I was I went to the gym every day that week. It, so that's not the same as someone who, you know, they're on a ventilator and then the family comes in and they say goodbye and they die. So could right. you maybe go in and give some examples and really, I mean, translate it for me as well, just, just about, you know, numbers. Where do they come from? What do they stand or what do they mean? And not only that, it gets even more complicated because there are humans and human flaws in there, including right. shuffling or uh, uh, strategizing for power, trying to get another, try to get higher up on the political chain. There are corporate, yeah. there are yeah, corporations with fiduciary responsibilities. So now they have an incentive in certain numbers being presented in certain ways. So could you kind of go in and just take anything, any example about anything and go yeah, into it? Yeah, absolutely. So you said a couple of things there. We could tease apart a lot of that stuff. So, you know, one example would be um, just that we see, like you said, a ticking clock, right? And we're constantly being shown death counts and case numbers. But the issue with those numbers is that, like you said, no one's explaining to us where those numbers are really coming from. So, for example, when we're seeing death data, a lot of times that's going to be case number. Those that data is going to be specifically coming immediately out of an out an inpatient setting like a hospital. However, now that time is passing because death data, and we know as epidemiologists and scientists that certain types of data take time for us to actually see the numbers realistically, right? For example, I could call a hospital, a local hospital today and say, hey, what's your, you know, how many deaths have they had and have they counted from a certain condition or just total? Because I'm trying to get a general idea of what is going on in that specific population. But is that really a general representation of what's going on in the outside world, right? So as epidemiologists, we're also always thinking about what we call generalizability. So is what we're seeing in this setting really a true realistic showing of what's going on in the real world? And oftentimes, it's not. And so I think one of the things that's going on now is that not anyone, no one's explained to us the difference between what's going on with these case numbers and what's going on with these death rates. And the other interesting fact factor now that we have in play is thinking about the trends that have happened over this past year, such as the implementation of different mandates, um, the introduction of the vaccine, and those 
things certainly made a difference. So for me as an epidemiologist, what I would look for over this past year is what kind of changes did I see when at those time points when significant things were happening historically over this past year. So did I see, right, because I could say to you, well, in 2021, we had, I'm just going to throw a random number out, a, um, you know, 10% increase in death rate. Well, that to me as an epidemiologist, that, that tells me one something, but I know as an epidemiologist, and I'm also an expert in chronic illness and aging, that right now we have a growing aging population that's projected to continue growing here in the U.S. and worldwide, at least through the year 2030, as we have the baby boomer population aging. And before the pandemic, we had a growing prevalence of chronic illness. So I expect with those two factors involved that I would see now, so see what I mean? Like I would hear that number and I think, well, there's those two factors I know already at play here. So but what else was going on that led to a 10% increase versus what I would expect in an average population without a pandemic, I would probably expect to see probably a 2% increase in death rates given those two factors I just mentioned, an aging population and grow, growing chronic illness rates. But I would want to know more, you know, what's going on behind the scenes, behind those numbers, and what was going on at certain time periods that may have created a spike in death counts. And the other thing, Tommy, that were, and I know I'm saying a lot, so, you know, stop me. We can no, clarify no, keep going. And the other thing that we want to think about, too, is that death rates in, like I said, are going to come at a certain rate out of an outpatient versus an out of an inpatient setting, excuse me. But what about the general population death rate? And now with COVID, we're starting to see, for example, insurance companies who are coming out and talking about certain death rates that they're seeing. And so, but again, no one's explaining what that really could mean and what we should think about. And the same thing goes with case numbers. So we see case numbers, but those are case counts. Now I know, and right now, you know, given the pandemic, we don't have, as a public health infrastructure in this country, there was never a standard way of collecting this data to the best of my knowledge. And I'll always say that because, of course, I'm very much open-minded to the fact that I can always be wrong. Mm -hmm. And I will always say anything I can to the highest of confidence to the best of my ability and to the best of my knowledge. We did not, as a public health infrastructure, have any public health officials or leaders come forward and say, these are the criteria that are being used to count cases so that that information could be disseminated across states and different counties so that the public health officials in individual counties, states, territories could say, okay, now we have an, a method to follow. Because in science, what we're interested in is, is sound and ethical methodology, but I don't know what one county in one state versus a neighboring county may have been doing. They may have been counting case numbers in a very different way. So to me, that says that, you know, the data could be skewed in a lot of different directions. And it's important for us now, I think at this stage, to start to find that information out. How did you calculate your case number? What was going into that? And now are we looking at numbers comparing different populations of people, right? Because when we exclude one group versus another, 
or we're not divulging all of that information to the public, um, we're withholding information that I personally, when I took my doctorate, I took an oath. I don't have an MD, I have a PhD. So I took an oath first and foremost to protect the greater good of the public's health and well-being. And so to me, there's just certain information like that that I think people just have a right to understand and know that I haven't yet seen anybody really step forward um, in a leadership way at even a national level and say, here is how you can understand these numbers so that we didn't have so much fear um, just running rampant all over the country and the world. Um, and I think that's kind of scary. So does that help at all start mm -hmm. to like and think about how to think about these different numbers, where they might come from? Could you maybe go in and tie into, um, so let's say, just again, a hypothetical, say deaths yeah. are up 10%. Um, what are we, because I mean, there's like the big glaring one, right, where it's like flu deaths go away, COVID deaths are through the roof. And then if you look at the total number of U.S. deaths per year, it's pretty much the same as it has been for decades. What is now coming out, you know, for all future listeners today is Wednesday, March 16th, 2022 not relatively kind of new coming out about the 40% death increase by insurance claims. Could you maybe go in and am I, are we being misled by that? Or is that, or is that real? That's an excellent, excellent, excellent question. And before we talked, I actually collected some information to be able to help us have this conversation because like you said, we're seeing some discrepancies that make us as a general population question what we can and can't rely on. And I think it's important for us to understand. So what I will say as somebody who has worked inside of those insurance companies, I do feel strongly that this data is reliable because these insurance companies have to report this, um, not just at a national level, but it has to also, it also has to do with their ability to continue receiving yeah. federal funds. So really important. And I actually collected some stuff coming from several different insurance companies. So we could kind of compare and contrast and talk about what's going on here and what this picture might really be telling us. So the reference you're talking about is the Indianapolis-based insurance company, One America, who recently came out and shared that their death rate is up 40% from pre-pandemic levels among their working age population. So that is an age range of 18 to 64 for those of for those of you who are listening. Now, what I can tell you, and let's just talk about that number first, and then we'll I'll share some others with you and we'll talk about that as well. So this number is extremely large. And what does this number mean and what does it tell us? Well, just to give you an idea, what we would expect inside somebody like me um, or anybody who's an analyst, right? I was not and I was not strictly an analyst inside of the insurance company I worked at. There are massive teams of people who work to analyze data all of the time, and they're incredible. And but just to give you an idea of how what that forty percent means, you know, what does that mean? Is that normal? Is that a huge increase? What what does that even mean? I think it's important for people to understand that um, if we that first of all. Um, We've never seen a death increase this large in any at any time point. And if we were expecting, if I worked inside of these walls and I were expecting to see a catastrophic event, and I'm sure that a lot of those that work in insurance companies would agree with this statement, that 
um, I would expect, you know, a once in a few hundred year situation, a catastrophic event would show me, I would expect to see about a 10% increase over pre-pandemic rates. So for us to see a 40% increase is, is quite unique and unheard of. But what is that really telling us? So a couple of things I see as an epidemiologist that help me understand what this is telling us is that I did look because, first of all, to me, if I, I need to know if I can trust. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This number one thing I need to know is, am I seeing any similar trends outside of One America? Because if just One America is claiming this, then I would know as an epidemiologist, there's something unique going on to the population that One America serves, Yeah. right? So we need to look at the other populations that all the insurance companies are serving and seeing what are they what are they seeing and what are they reporting. And there are a lot of reports from other insurance companies showing similar or worse increases. So a few examples, um, the UNAM insurance group is up 36%. So keeping in mind, we're comparing this with One America, who's up 40% since pre-pandemic compared with pre-pandemic levels. Um, Lincoln National is up 57%, Prudential 41%, the Reinsurance Group of America um, above 21%, Hartford above 32%, MetLife um, plus 24%, and um, Egan, which is a Dutch insurer, saw their U.S. own, when, when they isolated just their U.S. arm in the third quarter um, of this past year alone, they saw a 258 increase in death claims in the fourth quarter, 57%. So that tells me now, as an epidemiologist, when I see a trend that's common across these groups, that this is something to pay attention to. Unprecedented numbers that these insurance groups are reporting, and these are in employed populations of people, right? So people we would expect to be well enough to work. And... um, and so that is, is very concerning. That's very concerning. And it makes me question, you know, I will tell you in the general population, perhaps we haven't seen the death data catch up yet to, to what these groups are reporting. Inside of an insurance company, we collect real-time data. So it can, so these numbers can be calculated, you know, very much, not just internally and quarterly, yeah. but really any day. So someone could have called us at, Hi, Mark, and said, hey, what's your number? And I would have known exactly what department and what analysts to reach out to and say, hey, by end of day, can you let me know what that number is? And they would be able to produce it for me. But when we're looking at national numbers, that data, there's a much bigger lag time. So we tend to see the death death claims and death counts come out much later. So at this point, my expectation and suspicion is that we should see a change in those national numbers that tell us something a little more reflective of this. Does that help? It does. It, I, and I'm always trying to play devil, devil's advocate and, you know, yeah. being, 
being permanently banned from YouTube, having on Dr. Malone and Dr. McCall so many times, I have to I have to stay aware of the fact that I could be slipping towards a bias of everything they say is wrong. It's all a conspiracy. Right. And I have to keep my I have to kind of stay sober. I can't get drunk okay. on that. So yeah. if I see something that backs up my beliefs like those insurance claims, I have to go, let's not let's not immediately lean into this because part of me wants to be vindicated and see, I told you so. But like right. I have to be like, hold on, what are we like I look at VARES and it's like, okay, so it's more in the last two years than the last thirty years combined devil's advocate would be there's probably a lot more people reporting this because it's a a pandemic for the first time in 103 years 104 years that maybe that's a little skewed right so it's like i'll go back and like sometimes i'll track just random episodes from my podcast i'll just choose random ones and just excel spreadsheet just kind of track the views see how they grow try to model it on my own and every once in a while i'll see you know after they've been out for six months they kind of come to like a stasis point and ironically, we'll go up one view a day. And it's like, well, that's me clicking on the video to write down that. So you have to be aware of like how much of the actual observation, like the double slit experiment is affecting the actual data. So is there any legitimacy to, and that, and that's just me trying to play devil's advocate. Is there any legitimacy to that? Like we're in a pandemic. Are they maybe just hyper uh, attuned, tuned, tuned in to all the data coming in. Is, could that be an aspect, or is it really a just an insane jump in mortality? It really is just an insane jump in mortality. When it's this, when it's this big, yeah. Now I will say this, Tommy. If if I were seeing if any of those other insurance companies that I would have shared with you had much smaller increases, on like I had mentioned, yeah. I would expect. I would expect if there was a catastrophic event in just the country or the world, I would expect working inside of an insurance company to see around a 10% increase. And that would be something alarming for me as an epidemiologist to look further into and just and just start to determine what factors were impacting that number and that increase. But I would not be surprised. And if that number if all of the numbers were around that level, I would just say to you in this conversation, you know what, it it absolutely could just be the fact that we have been in a pandemic and absolutely more people have been dying, more people have been hospitalized and died in this past year than we've seen in a long time. And so I would expect to see a certain type of increase that was more unusual. But when we're seeing 40 I mean, that's above and beyond a trend that I can find a rational explanation for in my mind. And I consider myself an extremely ethical scientist and integrity is the most important thing to me in the entire world. With, with the deaths it seems like as they're as the media and the administration and the past one, they all kind of been gorging on it. Right. Don't let a, you know, not just politicians don't let a tragedy go to waste, but I mean, just anyone. And if it leads, it bleeds. It's we've got the news. We've got the scary update ticker. Oh my God, everyone's dying. Don't you think that, and again, me just trying to play devil's advocate. 
I feel like if the numbers were higher than anything we expected, that they would be broadcasting that. And then that leads to the next question. Is it because these aren't COVID deaths, but COVID vaccine deaths? Is that a, is that a reasonable hypothesis? That is a reasonable hypothesis because a lot of these death claims data that are being shared are overall claim data. So that's going to include non, this, that's going to include deaths that were not due strictly to COVID. And so that could potentially indicate, and I, I have a hard time speculating what else could be involved in such a drastically large increase because we know that we know enough about COVID in and of itself as a virus and how it behaves in a human body at this point that we know it's we know how it leads to ultimate death and we've seen it happen over and over again in hospitalizations in those cases but why are we seeing all of these other deaths in the population that aren't being coded as COVID deaths that are so astronomically, I mean, these are the highest death rates we have ever seen in the history of the insurance business ever, ever. Um, it's unprecedented. And so like you said, why isn't this all over the news? Um, people should be told about this. Um, and I believe that is because this, to me, points to a lot of worry and concern that this number could be related to the vaccine. I feel like that's, I feel like that's what it has to point to because it's, because if this were, if these were COVID deaths, this would be right out in the center. We got to shut everything down. Everyone, you yes. go, they love it. They love it. And, it's, and Tommy, you know, as well as I do. I think this is where, you know, it can be scary for some people to hear the truth because it's it's really scary to 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 start to imagine and, and learn that that we can't just blindly trust the people who yeah. as a population <laughs> truly work for us. We we hire the public health officials, they work for us. And to to imagine that they're, that they we have to be skeptical of them and we can't just rely on them to tell us the truth so that we can take care of ourselves and do the right thing and make the right choices for ourselves is is really scary but like you said um to me this this there can't really be any other explanation for this at this point yeah it's like when you're little and maybe you see like your parents cry or something and you're like mm-hmm. you're like oh like we're supposed to cry. You're like, the adults aren't. You're like, adults are supposed... That's like, that's like hitting turbulence in the pilot, like leaving the mic on and being like, oh, I don't know how we're going to get through this. You're like, what did you just say? <laughs> you're supposed to be the pilot with ice in their veins. <laughs> so there's that there's that moment when you're like, well, they're going to tell us what to do. And it's like, and then it starts to dawn on you that it's like, oh, the FDA and the CDC and the DOJ all kind of seem to be in cahoots with these corporations. And you find yourself looking for the adult and then spoiler alert, you have to become the adult yourself and start doing it yourself. But there's a lot, there's a lot of terror in between there where 
just stick your head in the sand. You go, let's not even think about that because that's right. You see it. Yeah. You see the big, the big pillars in Washington and the big, you know, white buildings and it's the national and there's something about it. You're like, we've, that's the thing. It's going to take care of it. And then you start to go, they are lying. They are censoring everything. Is this coordinated? What is the coordination for? Would they really use and abuse a pandemic just to sell vaccines? That realization, it's because not only is that bad, but then you go, that's just one thing. That's the biomedical pharma complex. Right. What about banking? That's 2008. What about the military industrial complex, the OG of complexes? What about the media entertainment complex? What about the the auto comp? You start to look at everything. Oil cartels, you go, oh God, is everything just is everything this evil, but it's just been painted up with makeup for so long and so well that we've had this illusion. It's the realization that it's not that things are bad now. It's that they've always been bad. And we have been, we've been putting makeup on the pig for decades. And now you're starting to realize that it is a pig. It's a monster with a bunch of tentacles. It was never an angel. And that's terrifying. That's terrifying. It's terrifying. And and like you said, it's suddenly, I, I feel like for us, especially when it comes to our health, and um, I can even tell you a story. It's it's about a study I used to work on. It makes me think about everything we're talking about. Um, but I think when it, in, when it comes to our health in this country, especially, I don't think that all along we've really had anybody anywhere along the way, you know, I go all the way back to you know, my public school education um, in health class. My gym teacher taught health class and and it was well known that that was the class you blew off, but I was a nerd, so I loved health class and I still got excited about it. But I think about, you know, all the opportunities along the way that there could have been for someone to educate us about how to be empowered with our health, how to advocate for ourselves. And now I see so many adults asking me, asking, I just, I was, when I I was just communicating with Dr. McCullough the other day um, and was listening to someone ask him this question in an interview, you know, well, how do I know now? um, How do, what can I, what are, what are my rights when I go to talk to a doctor? Can I, am I allowed to tell them that, I want to take ivermectin or hydrochloroquine. Um, And my heart bleeds when I hear those questions because I think where along the way, so many places and so many ways along the way that have led up to this point, I think we've had our power taken away from us without even realizing it. And no one's ever taught us how to be empowered and how to advocate for ourselves and how to understand that we have the right to go talk to any doctor however we want, because it's our health and it's our body. And, um, but all along the way, we've trusted them. We've trusted the doctors. We've trusted our public health officials. We've trusted the CDC. I used to work, you know, I've, I've been a research, I was a research scientist. You know, I was funded by the NIH. I worked for, um, I worked for a CDC research center at my university. I, I did that with pride, you know, and as an epidemiologist, Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We always say it's like you made it when you get to go work for one of those institutions. And it hurts me in the deepest part of my soul um, to see those institutions now become something that I can't just trust in. And so now we're at this place where it just feels so, so scary. But I want to tell you this story because I feel like it will help us talk about this in a, and bring some context into it, especially for our non-science listeners. But it makes me think about this study that I worked on. It's one of the studies I think is the most fun. You can tell I really love science and I'm a geek, but I love science. And this was one of the neatest studies I ever worked on. And it just shows us how science and ethics really should be. But it was a study called the Diabetes Prevention Program. And years and years ago, this was a randomized controlled clinical trial conducted at 27 clinical centers around the United States between the years of 1996 and 2001. This trial enrolled over 3,000 participants. So the gold standard Mm -hmm. of research. But Tommy, what's fascinating about this is that the research study was originally done to test one, a new drug versus another. So this was a pharmacological study and the, and the control arm of the study, which for our non-science listeners, when we do any kind of research study and you have to control, you, have to, you want to compare anything, you have to have a control group, which means they're a sample of what looks like just the general population who's not engaging in those things so that we can really say we're seeing a significant result if we have the power to do that. Mm -hmm. And so the control arm of this study was what I was working on. The reason is because the control arm was a lifestyle intervention program that was just consisted of eating a lower fat diet and exercising 150 minutes a week. Now, when we do research studies, traditionally, we have to report interim data to our funding agencies like the NIH. And we do that for a number of reasons, one of which to show that we're using the funding dollars the way we said we would when we were awarded the grant, but also to show how things are going. And if the NIH or the CDC or whoever's funding you sees that like anything's going on that seems unethical, because these are human trials, right? So it's so important to make sure we're taking every single step and consideration to protect the human being, um, they will shut down a trial, you know, if anything Mm -hmm. unethical is going on. So this trial was unprecedented because it was actually temporarily stopped because we found out, surprisingly, that the lifestyle intervention, healthy eating and exercise, was outperforming both drugs. (laughs) So much so that we had to shut down the trial because it was at that point considered unethical to not offer that lifestyle to everybody, including those in the the drug groups. Yeah. So interestingly, um, three years later, after the study, we were able to find that that lifestyle change program lowered people's chances of developing type 2 diabetes by 58%. Wow. 
Jesus. compared with the people who took the pill without who took the placebo, which was the pill without medicine. Now, this is now to com- give you a comparison. The participants in the research. Sorry, who I, sorry I, I know. I know I'm manipulating my blanket. I got the air conditioner on high. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Keep going. Um, the participants in the trial who took the drug only lowered their chances of developing type 2 diabetes by 31%. So we're talking an almost 30% difference in the effectiveness of a drug versus healthy eating and exercise. Now, at the time, I remember that this was, I, I remember the thinking, this is going to change the world. Yeah. Because we have to tell everybody and look at the power. But the reason I share this with you is for a few reasons. One, because it's an outstanding example to me of the ethics that we should be following at the highest level when we do any type of research, even in a pandemic, even in the midst of a global pandemic. And it also shows the power that a human being has over their own health and well-being because they weren't taking a pill with any side effects. They just were making their own behavioral changes. And I think to me, that story I've been thinking about a lot lately because, Tommy, I feel like what it tells me now is that I feel like there's so much fear out there and so much polarization. We, You and I both know that. And what I hope is that anybody who's been vaccinated themselves or chosen um, to stand, you know, to believe in the efficacy of that, um, whether you've been, you know, whether you've chosen to do that or not, what I believe with all my soul is that whatever choice everybody's made for themselves at this, to, at this point was the exact right choice for themselves. But what I believe now is that we all get an opportunity to make a new set of choices. And I hope that I can just share the, share some of the information to help people make an informed choice now. And now we have the ability to really be empowered. But I feel like we just haven't had anyone all along telling us how to do that. And now how to question these people and how to make sure we get the answers that we need from our officials and from the scientists um, how do we figure this all out and take our power back? The the exact video clip that got me permanently banned was from having Dr. McCullough on. And I snipped one bit out because I thought it was so great because, you know, he had he and I had done episodes about how the vaccine's bad. And then we almost kind of broke from our, our bias. And I remember he said, you know what, Tommy, in his in the sweet Dr. McCullough voice, he goes, you know what, regardless of vaccination status, young or old, everyone should be taking vitamin D, turmeric, zinc, and um, what was the other one? Cursetin. And he's like, and he was like, I because my audience ranges from like teenagers to people in their 80s. And he was like, I think that's, and it was just this moment like where we dropped the whole vaccine badge stick and we were just like, yeah, that's, and I thought it was so important that I like, and I never do this. I like clipped it out and uploaded it and like sent it. And I had friends who were young, old, for and against the vax. And the resounding response was like, thanks, man. You know, my dad's in his 90s. Like, I'll go get it for him. And I was just, it was just like this moment of like, hey, this is a good thing. Yeah. That is the clip that got me permanently banned. That's no. the one. 
the take it's called take your vitamins <laughs> that's the one and it was like and to me that like that black pilled me i was like it truly was this like let's stop doing the the mud slinging and it was just like hey for everybody and i and i even said it i was like for all my guests i know you know your parents are older here's one thing we can kind of all like hey you can go get this stuff from walmart for seven bucks it's vitamins you know, number most published cardio renal physician in world history said it. It was just like a PSA. I was like, that's a good thing. Yeah. And that that was like the dagger in the heart. And to me, I was like, well, now I am just going up against evil. Like that that kind of maybe threw me from like dedicated to just becoming like radical. Where I was like, uh, well, okay, we're fighting demons. But I get I get what you're saying. It's this idea of like, oh, you're like it's this beautiful like we can change it. Like we can do it. Like we got this good thing going. And then that's the thing that gets shut down and you realize just how nefarious the beast is. Yeah. And that's scary to me because it seems, you know, talking about empowering each other and yeah, helping and helping give people health information. I mean, to me, that just seems like the right thing to do. Yeah. It just seems like the right thing to do that, me, I'm I'm a heart centered person. I wear my heart and my emotions on my sleeve. And if you're watching this for any length of time, you can probably tell that about me. But I um to me it's just it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. To help, help people understand how to be healthy and how to be a, an empowered person and how to stand in your power and take charge of your health. Um I thought that as researchers and scientists and doctors and public health professionals and officials. I I thought that's why we got our degrees. At least, at least that's why I did. I just wanted to help people feel better. And I'm, um, I'm very much a purpose driven person, Tommy. So I, when, um, you know, when I was introduced to you, I knew that I was being called to step forward and share my voice and do whatever I could to be of service. And so that's really what I consider myself is I'm just here to serve and um, I feel honored to be able to serve. Well, well, thank you. And it's, so how did, how is that, how is that experience? How has that not just impacted your views on how things are going now, but, and this would all be, you know, admittedly speculation. Right. Admittedly. Yeah. How does it, how does it feed any spec? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Calculations we could make. So if you have that experience and you look forward... Like for instance, like me getting banned, I would now look at I now look at every person that's ever been banned, and I'm like, who actually got banned, and why did they get banned? How does right. your experience with that, with the health and wellness, fifty eight percent versus thirty one percent? Can how can we extrapolate that and apply it to what's going on right now? Is there any way it can be done? Mm, I love that question. I really love that question. It, it would be it's off the cuff you haven't had any time to prepare prepare for it i yeah. get that but it's again ad, admitted speculation admitted speculation honestly 
So how can we extrapolate my experience working on that study and what I observed there to what's going on now? A couple of things, actually. And again, for our listeners, absolutely speculation here. This is not based in mm-hmm. any data that I'm citing at this time. But I, first of all, it makes me speculate the process of events that happened leading up to the release of our vaccine that we now have, the vaccines we have available. Because what I do know and understand very deeply as a scientist is the process that leads up to the approval or release of anything that we consider safe and effective in science. So I've worked on trials that were pharmacological, like the one I shared. So I understand deeply the steps that must be taken by law in order to make sure that something is safe for a human trial. So for example, in that study I was working on, before we were even allowed to get to a level, we were at you know, dozens of research centers around the country working on thousands of people administering drugs you know, to thousands of people at risk of type 2 diabetes. That's a big deal, you know, a big deal. Um, there had to be certain studies that had to happen in order for, first of all, those drugs to ever be proven safe and effective so that the trial we all ran years later was ever going to become possible. And one of those types of studies are called pharmacokinetic and pharmacodistribution studies. And I know Dr. Malone has spoken about this, but studies that happen in animal models you know, that help us understand how long something stays in our body the impact it might have on our body and what types of impacts it might have on our body. So does something stay in our body for a long time? Does it make us sick if it does? Does it compromise our immune system if it does? And if it does go into the body and hang out there, you know, where, where is it hanging out? Because if it's going into internal organs or our lymphatic system, that could be really dangerous if it's potentially causing illness or death in animals, let alone humans, you know, those things really need to be figured out in advance. And what I do know is that it's not until now and more recently that we're starting to see some of that type of research be done and revealed to us. And so to me, I speculate that, you know, some steps were skipped over somewhere along the way in the process. And I also speculate, um, it makes me speculate about the release of information about what could have been safe treatments early on, because we saw so many people hospitalized and die, especially our older adult population. I'm also an aging epidemiologist, so I pay attention very closely to those types of trends, what's going on with our older adults. They're already a growing and vulnerable population, and I just quite frankly feel quite protective of them. They're the wisest part of our population, you know, and I side conversation for a whole other time, you know, I have, it's always bothered me that we live in a society that doesn't honor our elders the way I believe that we really should. Um, so uh, I try really hard no, to. I know what you're saying. When I had you know, to, when I was pre-med at University of Georgia, uh, like one of the things you have to do, you obviously you have to ace your classes and letters of recommendation, right. all, all that crap, but like. You also had the volunteer hospitals, you like shadow yeah. doctors and yeah. volunteer. And I liked it. You go and volunteer at Athens Regional Medical yeah. Center, just go do whatever. And I remember I, one of the times I wanted to be an anesthesiologist, so I was always in the anesthesia ward. But one semester I showed up late and so I had to sign up for something else. Long story short, it was my job to push out the people in the wheelchairs out to where they got picked up. And yeah. 
they were all like they were all like 80 plus and so i just kind of got into a habit where i had like three minutes with them from the time i got them to the top floor down the elevator out to where they got picked up and i'd always see what could i learn in three minutes and i'd always however old i was at the time i would be like i'm 21 at the time what advice would you have for me and man they'd always say like no one no one and some of their advice was insane. They'd just be like, you know what? They'd be like, drive fast. It doesn't matter. You're going to die anyway. I'd be like, that's hardcore. And then sometimes they'd be like, they'd be like, call your parents. You love your friends. I'd be like, thank you. And most of the time it was somewhere in between. It was pretty much across the board. Do what you love because it ends tomorrow. And if it doesn't end tomorrow, then you're going to live your whole life regretting not doing what you love. And sometimes it would be a little more insane. It would be like, you should drag race more. And I'd be like, well, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that, but thank you. But, but yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Yeah, no, to me, but I was always like, there are these treasure troves of information that I get three minutes with on a wheelchair. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. No, don't interrupt. You're not interrupting at all. And I love learning that we share that in common. It makes me adore you more. But, you know, back to like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aging, yeah. Bringing it back to like the point of what I was trying to say, which was that, you know, we had in that study that I was working on, the diabetes prevention program. We had an awareness early on, right? So a couple of things that I, again, speculate based on that experience and all of my other experiences in the research field. So I said to you, we collect interim, we collect interim data and we do interim analyses and we are required to report up to, you know, who's above us funding us, the CDC, whether it's the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, whoever your funding agency is, you're required to report interim data to them. And that's saying, hey, here we are as a team of scientists. We're doing our due diligence. We're doing what we said we sent out to set out to do as good scientists. And here's the data showing that what we're doing is safe, safe for these people and that they are not in harm's way and we can quantitatively prove that to you. And we were required to do that regularly. So what I question then is why weren't our federal agencies and institutions held to those same standards during the pandemic, whether it was pre or post vaccine um, availability? I didn't see anybody coming out and reporting any interim data to me on the news. I didn't see anyone saying, hey, we're going to explain this death count data to you today. We're going to explain the case number data, but let us show you. You know, I'm an epidemiologist. I want to see the data. And I think of my favorite biostatistics professor who used to stand in front of the room and do a little dance and say, look at your data. Like, you got you to gotta look at your data. And how if you just look at the end result, the number, and you didn't look at the data, you're missing the story because the story's in there somewhere. So I've been wondering all along, well, where, where is the data? Why can't you just show it to us? Because it should be very easy and it should be that transparent. We as scientists are expected to be that transparent to those who we report to and our public health officials report to the American people. So why weren't the public health officials required to report to those they serve that interim type of data? I didn't see anybody sharing that. So I speculate somewhere along the line that that seems that just seems questionable to me as a scientist and a good and ethical scientist. And the other thing I speculate, my third and final speculation from this is that this study that I worked on, one glowing example of the power of 
lifestyle behavior change. And so when we know that something like that was so incredibly effective statistically, now we're talking a study with high power, a huge sample size. And in, for those who are non-science listeners in, in science, we like to see a big sample size. And what that means is just a large study population because the more power that gives us as scientists more power to statistically say that we've actually seen the result that we want to see. And so I wonder when we have had a lot, and geez, that one study I'm sharing with all of you is one of, Mm -hmm. at this point, thousands of published examples of other studies looking at other chronic illnesses. So we've got a lot of evidence out in the field of the power and statistical power of behavior change like this to impact our health and well-being. So knowing that, and yes, we didn't have studies yet showing if it was effective at helping us prevent um, prevent ourselves from getting sick from COVID, but we had enough strong evidence to know it was worth sharing. It was worth saying, hey, this is scary. We're trying to figure this all out as scientists on your behalf right now, but you know what? Here is based on the science. As researchers and good scientists, we can tell you what we do know that you can do right now to help yourself so that you can feel as safe as possible. But instead, you know, we just told everyone to cover their faces, um, which, you know, I guess there was a rationale for that at some point. But we also have you and I both know a lot of good science um, about what how safe or effective that ultimately was for us. But why didn't we also suggest those things? Um, I'm just not quite sure. So those are my big speculations. Yeah, that's. I always I always jump back and forth, and it's always hard to discern if it's what I actually believe or if I want to believe it. But I, I look at things and I'm like, is it all just a a cover up for profit, which isn't unprecedented? That's not. It's not impre- that's not some wild conspiracy. Look at the opioid epidemic. Look, I mean, thalidom- no, yeah, look at thalidomide, lucky strikes. It's been going on forever. You don't, you know, you don't need vitamin C. Doctors say it doesn't cause scurvy. The opium wars, like, this is all this time. Yes, that's, that. yeah. To share with you, I have a personal example. My grandmother, sure. my maternal, my mom's mom, my grandmother, um, given thalidomide and my aunt Joanne, who my middle name is after, um, passed away when she was 16 years old from uterine cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And I never got, and I never have gotten a chance to meet her as a result. Yeah. It's very real. It's very real. It's not just some wacky. It's not, no, it's I mean, not just a story. Yeah. I mean, the opioid, the Oxycontin, Purdue family, the Sackler family, that was in 2009. That's 13 years. It's not even, you look back at thalidomide and it's, maybe it's kind of hard to grasp. It's like, that was a while ago or lucky strike cigarettes. This was in 2009. Like, like, like Facebook was several years old. Like it's not, you know, like it's, it's not. So on one hand I go, is it all just, is it all just profit gouging? And I, I tend to believe it's probably what it is. I don't, I don't really go all in for the whole, you know, depopulation idea. My logic is this is I've interviewed Ken Albeck, first deputy director of the Soviet bioweapons program. Amazing. They were putting like smallpox on cruise missiles. So my logic is, is like, hey, we could depopulate. 
we could do it a lot quicker than this. So. We could. And, and Tommy, <laughs> to your point, I can share with our audience, this is um, anybody who went to graduate school with me who denies this is either just doesn't have a good memory or they're lying. But when I was in graduate school, training to become an epidemiologist, we were required to take courses We were where we learned about bioterrorism. Yeah. In, in those classes, now this, this was, I was a master's student. Um, now I had a near-death experience in my in my career, in my graduate career. So my graduate career lasted longer than I would have liked or expected, but I was working on my master's back in 2006, 2007. And I learned in graduate school then I was specifically told that even the diseases, even the infectious diseases that we have eradicated are still living in laboratories Mm -hmm. and being kept alive. And I have to say, now, I'll share with you, Tommy, that it probably won't surprise you. I was considered very outside of the box in my graduate school program. I was often told my ideas were too innovative and too outside the box, and I needed to come up with something, I guess, that made me small, think smaller. But to me, when I remember learning that in school, in class, I remember back then thinking, hmm, so that's scary. You know, but th- so this is not news. You know, no. we have been housing and keeping so like you said that that ability has always existed yeah oh yeah yeah Yeah, no atlanta moscow that's where the two smallpox samples are it goes back before that i mean everyone we all know it about operation paperclip and bringing back the rocket scientists from germany we also brought back dr kurt bloma who was in charge of the the sword and shield program about vaccinating yourself against the bioweapons that you would release upon your enemies but even darker than the Nazis, if it's possible, was Unit 731 in Manchuria, the Japanese Imperial Army that Shiro Ishii headed, where they were going to use, because to quote Shiro Ishii in 1945, America is a machine society. They can build ships and tanks and planes faster than anyone else, but it takes them 18 years to grow a soldier. We brought them back here. Shout out CIA, I guess. But But the point is, is like, this isn't, unlike the Pfizer thing, where it was like, hey, that was just 13 years ago. This goes back before my parents were born. This goes back to, I mean, literally 19, like Truman in office is when we started bringing these guys in here and going, how do we build this? So like, it is very, all those things are very real, but I guess, but because those things are so real kind of fuel the reason why I don't, I don't subscribe to the idea of like COVID or the vaccine being any sort of, because I'm just like, they could do it so much bigger, so much more quickly otherwise. So the point of all that is, so on one side, is it just profit, which is okay. Yeah. I mean, what every booster shot, however, however many billions they make, but the other side, which is real is incompetence, right? We know about the, the fumbling of the compartmentalization between the FBI, the CIA, the DIA, all leading up to nine 11. And if there had been more free flowing information, they probably would have been able to thwart it. Other people would say it's because they did it. I I tend to look at it as incompetence. It's incompetence. So just as much as the CIA could be responsible for JFK, you also have to realize there's also a lot of guys in there that are going, oh my God, we just let the president get killed. Like it's going to be our heads. So when it comes to sort of defense, surveillance, intelligence, just as easily as you could speculate they're behind a conspiracy, they're also muddying the waters, you know, who, 
who you ever work at like a like a I worked at like a smoothie or any restaurant. You ever work at a restaurant? Who closed out last night? Yeah, who closed out last night? You're like you're like shit. I forgot to clean the bathrooms. So you go erase your name. You're like I wasn't working last night. And it's not because it's a conspiracy. It's because you're like I don't want to get fired. So so I say all of that to say like right it is it's who's closing out the restaurant. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah. I think it's a job everyone in the world should have to do. It's a a requirement. out for a day it gives you a whole new outlook on life but absolutely but 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 so think about that right you know if something's dirty it's who closed out last night now if you go and take your name off the schedule it's not because you're working for the neighboring restaurant and you left everything dirty because you're an inside man it could just be oh fuck i didn't do my job so you go and you try to cover up your incompetence could so to me and maybe it's the doe-eyed optimist in me i go on one hand it's all about the profit margin thalidomide, Lucky Strikes, uh, Oxycontin, Suboxone. On the other side, and this is what I want to believe, is that they're muddying the waters because a lot of people didn't do their job or they did their job poorly. I don't have as much faith in that. I tend to think it was a money grab and we're seeing the true face of these people that they don't care if 800,000 Americans die. They don't care. They're making, who did, what did Albert Burla, the CEO of Pfizer say? COVID vaccines are going to be, quote, a robust income source for us in the future. Yes. Hey, hey, man, they're they're kind of telling you what they stand for. Exactly. Well, what are your thoughts on, on, and again, wide speculation, what are your thoughts on that? Is it competent? Is it malicious competence? Or are they muddying the waters in the wake of incompetence? Because you can't hold that idea of the mighty fda and cdc if you realize that they're just like you and i they're just a bunch of clowns that have no idea how the world works and every day is terrifying and they don't want to lose that perception of you know you look at 9-11 that makes america look neutered you go how did we let that happen how did a bunch of guys with box cutters take us down you almost want to muddy the water i know i'm rambling but i mean like south park that south park episode where george bush like he he starts like George Bush and Dick Cheney start like sowing the seeds of the nine eleven inside job. I haven't seen that in years. But they start they start sowing the seeds that nine eleven was an inside job. Yeah. And they're like so whenever like Cartman goes by him, you know, George Bush will like accidentally drop like a manila folder of like documents framing himself. And finally he admits he's like, Listen up, boys, he's like, We didn't actually do nine eleven. And they're like, Well then why are you trying to get people to think why are you trying to get people to start thinking that you guys did it. And it's actually kind of poignant. He goes, because we didn't do it and we were powerless to stop it. So we'd rather have the public believe that we are so powerful that we could pull it off than to think, because to quote Gorbachev, our power comes from the perception of our power. So on one hand, was it a profit grab? On the other hand, is it a bunch of guys muddying the water because, oh my God, the CDC isn't all powerful. And I know I just threw a bunch at you, but... What are your no, thoughts on no, that? You didn't at all, and I actually, I have, I actually don't have to think at all about this answer. I have definite thoughts about this, and to be honest, Tommy, I do think it's a little bit of both. I yeah. do think that I, I will say that I tend to lean more toward your 
your speculation. And the reason is because I worked for the insurance companies. Yeah. And, um, and I don't mind sharing that the reason I became very unhappy working there was because I was hired to come in and help create ideas to help improve health, the health of different groups of people. And I, I couldn't wait to get there and I couldn't wait to help and make a difference. And do you know how many people I actually got to help? Two. None. And the reason is because, and I worked there for years, four years. The reason I didn't get to help anybody is because every single time I proposed an idea, first of all, none of them had to do with pharmaceuticals, all had to do with natural interventions. The first question out of everybody's mouths at the insurance company. So realize, and I think it's important for people to understand that our insurance companies play a much bigger role in all of this than we realize. Um, the first thing they'd ask me is, well, what's the, RO, what's the ROI on that, Dr. Rogers? Well, that's a nice idea, but what's the ROI on that? And I would, of course, easily explain to them where and when they could potentially expect to see an ROI. However, they needed to look at the bigger picture because when we're talking about human beings, it takes a while for us to see our health improve, right? So I can't just give you an ROI that's going to come in a month or even six months. It might come in a year or maybe two years, but that wasn't good enough. And it was never good enough. They wanted money now, and they wanted me to tell them how to make it and make as much as possible now. And I learned Unfortunately, all the deep, dark, dirty secrets about how our healthcare system really works while I worked at that job. And, um, and it broke me. And I couldn't be a part of something like that. I, I couldn't be a part of something like that. I learned that I could have been, you know, I, I wanted to do my MD, PhD. So when I, how I know Dr. McCullough is that I was working on a training grant with the NIH the very beginning of my doctoral career. And I was actually working on um, subclinical cardiovascular disease. So another area of my expertise is that, but my other passion was chronic kidney disease. Um, so I was working at the intersection of those two things, which is where Dr. Mm -hmm. McCullough and he was at the time one of my heroes for obvious reasons. Um, but anyway, I went there and was working there and realized that the way that the system works has to do with money. And that's the big interest. And no matter what I proposed, it didn't really matter. What mattered was as much money as possible, as fast as possible. And it didn't matter what people, what was happening to people in order for them to get that result. And then what I learned was that had I actually gotten my MD, which I didn't ultimately decide to get because of my near-death experience, I would have been stuck inside of a system where I couldn't have really helped the way I wanted to help because I would have been bound by the rules that get passed down from those institutions. The insurance companies create these guidelines that they have to follow and it's all about money. So they send incentives down to the hospitals, to the inpatient and outpatient clinics. So, you know, for, I know for a fact related to COVID, there was an incentive, a financial incentive for people to be put on a ventilator in a hospital. Mm -hmm. there, was a, there was a financial incentive for people to be given a diagnosis of COVID. 
there was a, an, an, a large financial incentive. We're talking for a ventilator, an incentive of $10,000 per person. So we're talking big money, big dollars here. And I have to tell you that what I know, because I've worked inside that system and I've sat at the, I've sat at the table with those people who make those decisions, they are ruthless. They are not sitting there. There's no about the individual patient while I was sitting there and that it was all that I cared about. And that was ultimately why I had to walk away. So while, so that, of course, that experience, my professional experience, um, and of course that maybe that jades me, right? Like you and I can obviously admit this is speculation. This isn't based in science and research. You know, I'm not sitting here citing thousands of research papers for you to make this speculation, but um, it's a powerful speculation based on my professional experience and what I observed inside of that system. And I know that that was not an isolated event. That was that's what goes on at every at every health insurance company in this country. And I find it to be a very dark thing. And I find it to be really disturbing. And one of my hopes is that through all of this that's going on, that those of us who are willing and brave enough to step forward and stand in the light and stand for truth, I hope and pray that enough of us stand up so that we can change this system because it's more than what needs to be changed here is more than just what's going on with the pandemic. We have a system that is failing the people because it is not for the people. Mm -hmm. It is for profit. So it broke me in a way that, and so I do lean toward that, but I do also, Tommy, Tommy, I really do also think that it is some incompetence as well because I, I know, I just do believe with all of my heart because I know that there are people, good doctors, you know, scientists, researchers that work inside that system who maybe it's conscious. Some of them are doing it consciously, some of them not. But let's face it, what I know is that they're hyper aware of who pays them, of who they work for. And when, I, for example, if I was coming to, if I still worked for the University of Pittsburgh, I couldn't have come on this podcast today because my job would be gone tomorrow. Yeah. And I know that. Yeah. And you can believe, and you can believe that so would my research career because no fat, because, and because whoever they are would make sure that I never received another grant dollar for the rest of my career coming from the NIH, coming from the CDC, which are, pri- are, which are as research scientists and epidemiologists, our primary sources of livelihood. And I'm sure a lot of people don't realize this, but inside the walls of academia, especially at the you know University of Pittsburgh is an example, but a lot of the universities I worked at, Johns Hopkins, I have colleagues there and did a lot of work on this went there for a postdoc. But any institution you go to as a researcher, you are required as a researcher to produce a certain proportion of your own salary with federal funding dollars. So it's your livelihood. And I guarantee that some of this is also incompetence, whether it's conscious or not, and whether it's based in fear or not. So I do think it's some of both. Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I've interviewed a couple times now, Dr. Oddity Bargava, who's the head of mRNA research at UCSF, and she comes on and 
you, yeah, she comes on and it's always it's always that much more insane because she still works there. And uh, I've had on twice now a, a PhD student from uh, Rice University, Martha Fowler, who's doing uh, she's doing her dissertation on uh, the migration of, of tumors on in white matter in the brain. But like she's come on and talked out because uh, she's looking at what's going on with kind of COVID censorship. And she's saying to all of, like her fellow students, she's like, guys, this isn't, this isn't like the relentless pursuit of knowledge. This is we're towing the party line. And um, yeah, no, she's come on here and it's with both of these people. These are exceptions because, and I understand it. Everyone else is like, I can't do I can't come on your show. I'll get fired. Like, and I, I get it. It's very easy for me to say like, we should all stand up for the truth. I'm also my own boss. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's it's easy it's it's easy for us to say this is what needs is. to be done yeah. because I'm not I'm not dependent on someone else for a job. You know, I do this episode, I don't get a knock at my door and it's like, Hey Mr. Kerrigan, you know, you know, here we are with whatever, you know, podcast incorporated. No, I just get to do this and for better or worse I get to do this. But I do get where a lot of people can't speak up and God if that's just not if that's not so dystopian, like don't talk. And then, so who, you know, who's behind the federal funding? Who's behind the funding dollars? Well, politicians. And what do they get? They get lobbied. Who are the biggest lobbyists? Not the military industrial complex. It's not them. You think it is. It's not. It's big pharma. And now who's directly benefiting from you not talking about anything that would directly affect their bottom line. It's big pharma. So you see how it closes the loop. I, God, I mean, that's an uphill climb. It is. And I think, too, Tommy, another thing that a lot of people don't realize. Um, and tell me, did you realize this? I actually did not realize this until I worked for the insurance company. They also have lobbyists that they hire. Oh, yeah. They, they send to the state and federal government to talk yeah. to lobbyists. I remember learning that and just thinking, wow. But like you're getting at, I just... It's so dystopian, and our academic research science institutions were birthed on the foundation of us being able to free think, to share, to debate, to openly debate. That's what science is supposed to be all about. We're supposed to debate each other and ask questions and share opposing viewpoints, um, and we aren't able to do that anymore. I can tell you I've, since I was, this was, this is actually, I will tell you, this is the first time I'm ever going to say this out loud in my life that I have felt strongly since I was a doctoral student that the opposing viewpoint in a lot of respects was not welcomed because I was, it was made clear to me that my way of thinking and my opinions were not welcomed. I was told multiple times the dissertation that I wanted to write was too outside the box. I wanted to talk about social isolation, coincidentally or not. I don't believe in coincidences. And I was told years ago, well, this would have been around 25th, circa 2015, that um, I couldn't talk about social isolation because that was too outside the box and look where we are today. So... I just think it's time that we bring back, it's time for science to be what it is supposed to be. It's time for us to be able to all share our opinions. Um, science shouldn't be about censorship. Um, yeah. It shouldn't be just about 
It shouldn't be about a bunch of people sitting at an institution saying, this is the way you need to think. Here's what you, here's what you go do next. And just handing out um, a series of instructions. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It should be, we should teach people how to speculate, how to understand the numbers we share so that hopefully, gosh, somebody will challenge us and help us do better. Um you know? There, but there at the same time, there almost is like a, there's almost like a beauty to it, where it's like it's like you have to go through the gauntlet. Like we all know what science should be; it should be like the relentless pursuit of knowledge at all costs, finding the truth, as Howard Bloom says, even if it kills you. And we can look back and we can look at the barbarians who would uh, put on house arrest and excommunicate and burn at the stake anyone that said that the Earth wasn't the center of the universe, and we we scoff at them. But Absolutely. maybe that's even look at like the Salem witch trial. Oh yeah, that's a woo. That can, we, you could say that's woo, but it's not. I mean, look what we did to women. Yeah, who stood up and spoke their minds. Yeah, you know? we burned them to death. Like yeah. that's so. But there is almost something beautiful about it, where it's like, you know, if you truly love science, as I do, as you do, as McCall and Malone on and on do, it can't be easy. Right. It can't it can't you have to look back and you have to go, you know, a hundred years we will be vindicated, but there's almost something beautiful about the fact that you won't see the vindication. And it's like that's the hardcore pursuit of science where it's like we'd all love to have the pat on the back. There's something hardcore about knowing that you might not be vindicated for five hundred years and you go, Oh, that's like the real panthe like pantheon, pantheon of I totally agree. Yeah. You know what else it makes me think of is just this beautiful, like, you know, taking this like one step even deeper is that, I mean, isn't what you're saying really what life's all about, right? I mean, I I think that's the definition of just being a truly good person. Your willingness to serve and do something good for others without needing to, not needing the acknowledgement, not needing to see the result, not needing everybody to know that it was you. You know, um, that's why, like, honestly, every day, I, this is silly, but every day I do one thing that I, I try to do one thing to help somebody and I never tell them and I never tell anyone else about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Me, that's just, that's what, it's that's pure. Oh, yeah. I, I don't need to go say to my fiance, oh, hey, guess what I did for so-and-so today and it made me feel good. I, I don't need to tell anybody and I don't need to tell them. Oh, yeah. No, I, I always kind of joke around. So it's like we're it's March sixteenth now. April fifteenth will be the eight year anniversary of my older older brother's suicide. And what I started doing one year after that was around the anniversary, I'd always do something like really cool for a friend or someone. And I've ne- and I don't tell anyone what it is, but like you know whether it's uh you know buying someone this or tipping a delivery guy that. I mean like an absurd thing. And like uh, so like I recently did it. And I won't say who or what it is. But I have found that, like, not only has it kind of, like, started to undo the trauma of that date and made it something I look forward to, but I also tell people, like, 
I mean, forget the selflessness aspect of it. I'm like, I'm like, forget cocaine or sex. I'm like, you want a pure high, do something awesome for someone else and don't tell a soul. That is like, that's some shit even Hunter S. Thompson would be jealous of. Like that is, that is some uncut euphoria. You want bliss? You you don't need it in a syringe, man. Go, go bring 200 bucks of, of groceries to the homeless shelter or go buy someone something anonymously, man. You're, you're, you're. Your 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 pupils dilate. I mean, forget pills. You're like, wow. That's you know, if you want to feel life, do that. Yeah, no, and it's, but that's the thing though, right? Is it's uh, you know, society grows great when old men tramp. When a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they won't sit under. It's like <laughs> that's the, you know, but isn't it? It's like, and it's like. True. And like the ego wants it though, right? I mean, the ego is always oh, like, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. yeah, you you do the selfless thing. And I think it's uh, the comedian, I think it was Duncan Trussell that said, he was like, you know, I'll go to the homeless shelter and bring a bunch of ramen noodle. And he goes, it's great because I'm doing it. And I don't tell anyone. He goes, but I'd be lying if I said that, like, I wouldn't be happy if some friends drove by and were like, look at Duncan. And he's going to these, like, the little ego in you is like, yeah, give it to me. But like, oh, that's, that's right. That's the ego in all of us. And to say it's not there is lying through your it's li- yeah it, it's lying through your, yeah it's lying through your teeth to say it's not there but like absolutely like joseph lister uh i've had on the author Lindsay fitzharris who wrote the book the butchering art and it's all about him he kind of hypothesizing and then putting into practice and then perfecting the antiseptic technique you know the crazy idea that maybe we should fascinating isn't that story fascinating i love i'm a like public health and medical yeah nerd i love like fascinating. yeah and joseph lister's like one of the few that he was actually vindicated in his lifetime he was one of the few where it's like he actually got to say i told you so and like that's awesome the vast majority of the time you're never gonna get the pat on the back you're gonna go to your death and years or decades or centuries down the road they're gonna go oh this guy was this guy was a this guy was a gangster he actually and <laughs> There's something, there really is something beautiful about knowing that. So like as much as we'd like to say like, hey guys, can't we learn from the Salem witch trials? Can't we learn from Galileo and Bruno? Can't we learn about from this that we shouldn't be ostracizing doctors today? But at the same time, man, it's like, that's kind of the beauty is like, no, people will in the future, they'll be saying, can't we learn from Dr. McCullough and Dr. Malone guys? Don't you remember? And it's in the few, in the year 2,500, there'll be some other thing that you can't question and like, but it's like the final gauntlet. It's like, it's enough. You can win a championship, but if you're really good, you go to the Olympics. There's something cool about going and like conquering the thing and you'll never get vindicated. But like, you know, you did it. And it's like, there's just some, there's, there's like a mic drop kind of aspect to that where it's just like, fuck yeah. And you know, you did it for the right. Yeah. Reason, yeah. Know? Because it was like a soul alignment thing. Yeah. This is what you have to do. And that's how I feel about everything we're talking about. I just, all, it's just the right thing to do. It's just to talk about it, to tell the truth with, you know, so help me God. Yeah. And then there's, there's also just like, it's cool. Like who doesn't want to be punk rock? Who doesn't want to do what you can't be? Yeah. When, when every corporation and politician and media is like, you can't do this. There's something about like, you're throwing on a leather jacket and you're like, 
no, I am going to do this. You're like, you know, what if 10 years ago you had said Ivermectin would be like the new like Mohawk, people would be like, what the hell is Ivermectin? But like, yeah. you know, there's just something also just kind of cool about it. You're like, I'm going to do whatever I want, man. You know, it's, you're the cool kid, right? It's, uh, yeah. So, so geeks like you and me can actually, we can be the cool kid. We can, uh, we can be some punk rock guy, but, uh, Dr. Rogers, let's, uh, let's wrap this one up for now. I would love to have you on again sometime. I would be honored to come back on anytime, Tommy, anytime. I just want you to know, like, I just consider you like a soul brother, like, well, you're my soul we're just, sister. We're just, we're just friends now for life. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what everyone comes on this podcast is they don't understand is unfortunately they are, they're, they're my friends now. And people realize that afterwards they're like, yeah, I just came on your show. I'm like, nope, we're buddies now. And they're like, that. yeah, that's a, it's, it's not a choice. No one has a say in the matter, but, um, and can I tell you, I think like one of the coolest things about all of this is like how Dr. McCall and I got to like get connected and I got connected to you. And I have to tell you before. Sure. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not in a rush before all of this. Like I really thought I always was like the outcast epidemiologist, you know, I knew, I didn't think like anybody else and I had a hard time finding a place where I felt like I fit. And now I don't feel like that anymore because I found my tribe. Yeah. Like you, you guys, you are my people. Yeah. You are my freaking people. Yeah. And that I found my people. I feel so empowered that I thought I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not yeah. afraid to sit, speak my truth and stand on the good side of science and stand up for the light and stand up for for our people, like somebody has to, and um, that's all we're trying to do. But I'm so glad I found you, my friends. I'm I'm glad I found you. I yeah, people. Hell yeah, hell. But it's I'm, I mean, but I but I'm like it's 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 I mean it's an admitted kind of like an an exaggerated ample, uh, example because I don't want to put ourselves on a pedestal. But I always look at like you know I look at something like World War II and it's like it's so destructive. But I always in my limited mindset, it's someone that's never served in combat i always think like there had to be some sort of peace though and like knowing you were fighting nazis who were literally exterminating jews you're like that you like you can kind of get behind that and then you look at something like korea or vietnam and you're like uh, why am i here you know what am i fighting for like we're doing what and so i look at it as like as evil as everything is right now with profit just price gouging and killing hundreds of thousands of millions of people and suppressing alternative treatments. I mean, how lucky are we that like there is a delineated good fight? It's not obscure. It's not like, what am I doing? It's like, there is a side against free speech against bodily autonomy and against life-saving treatment of generic medications with no side effects. And then there are the people fighting that. And you're like, you know, it ideally there would have there would be no fight. We'd be in utopia, but you, we can sit around forever waiting for that. I always think like, how blessed are we that like there's a good fight, yeah. and it's not some weird skewed. You're in the jungles in Kaisan, and you're like, what are we? We're fighting the Russians for what? It's it's like no, I'm for the freedom of speech, the freedom of bodily autonomy, and I think you should be able to take these proven and tried drugs to treat a illness. Like what a yes. what a how lucky are we that like that fight exists? We're you know, lucky. yeah. I'm I'm eternally grateful. I know it was a really really dark place, and I couldn't imagine if it weren't if this didn't exist. Yeah, 
yeah it's it's it's, here to balance out the dark yeah what a what a blessing that like the fight has been served up like you know like what a blessing that like you know what to do like being being pre-med being pre-med was difficult but i always found peace in it because i was like there are a list of classes that i have to take and all i have to do is ace them (laughs) building a podcast is terrifying because there was no advisor there was no good fight i was like i don't know what i'm doing I know, building my business too. I felt the same. Oh, it's horrifying. I'd rather be pre-med a hundred times over again. Because as hard as the classes are, it's all laid out in front of you. You got to take this, that, this, publish some research, apply, put on, yeah. Just do the thing, study for the test, memorize it, put on a tie, go interview at a medical school. That's the the hard parts I got to study. At least the path is laid out for me. And then you do this shit and you're like, how do I how do I find guests? How do I get a good camera? You have no idea what's going on. So what kind of microphones I I know. So like, that's kind of how I view it is like, it's pre-med, like it's tough, but man, at least it's like the path is paved. That's the hard part. Then you just got to do it. So, you know, not to completely like shit on my podcast now, like as I'm openly saying it, there's bliss and not doing it, but the wires are getting crossed now. We're I'm, we're an hour and a half in. My brain starts to short circuit. Let's uh, let's wrap this one up, Doctor okay. Rogers. Thank you so much. I will send you this episode when it's up. I would love to have you on again. We will schedule it. And um, thank you so much. And thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you for everything you're doing too, my friend. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody. God bless. Do the right thing. Recording thank you so much, Doctor Rogers. Take care. Thank you so much, Tommy. I can't wait to talk to you again. We will. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye.